0: For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive.
2: Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Joyce Sonelli. She is Partner and Chief Operating Officer at Big Rock Partners They're a strategic advisory and investment firm focused on food and hospitality and cannabis. So we're going to talk to her about what she's seeing in the space, the work that they're doing, always interested in the investor side, you know, cannabis, obviously growing market. It's seen a lot of drama over the last couple quarters in terms of, you know, valuations and things, but, um, you know, really kind of curious uh, from the investor side, like how, how people are treating cannabis, where they see opportunities, what the needs in the market are going to be, what they see is really going to drive things. So excited about this. With that, Joyce, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you. Great to be here.
2: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about background first. Kind of curious what your personal background was and how you got involved in Big Rock, how you got involved in cannabis. Give us the backstory.
3: Great. So I have been dabbling in cannabis since 2004 in that I, I live in California. Originally from Atlanta, Georgia, but I've been out here about in the Bay Area about twenty years. And so, when two fifteen passed in nineteen ninety six, it drew a lot of it drew a lot of new folks from many areas. And uh, out here in the Bay, in two thousand and four, I started growing in my home. I had been, you know, consumer since uh, really before college, um, and uh, I just really appreciated the opportunity to have a couple plants in my home. I've always loved gardening, and so. For me, it's been kind of a personal journey. In 2012, I decided to sort of up the ante and uh, partnered with an individual who had been a master grower, had a project up in Humboldt and wanted to be a little closer to the bay. So he and I partnered on a project. I'm um, a medical collective in a part of the Sierras that at the time allowed for outdoor medical grow under the the 215 moniker as well. And um, yep. we did that for four years, won an Emerald Cup in 2016 in the dry sieve category. twenty uh, 15, I started, uh, I was fundraising chair for the Sonoma County chapter of Women Grow and started personally investing in, uh, you know, passively venture investing and, and other deals. So when I met the principals at Big Rock, the founders of the family office, Mike and Shauna Harden, I had, you know, a nice network already in the space and kind of a baseline. And I worked in tech. So my Full time profession. I originally worked in the music space on the sales and marketing side as the decimation of the music industry occurred due to <laughs> streaming. <laughs> Let's yeah. not decimate cannabis, please. Uh, the streaming opportunity really hurt the industry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I actually pivoted into technology, spent about 10 years working in the licensing space for e commerce companies, but, you know, all the while kind of had a, a private passion burgeoning. For the cannabis sector, and so in 2016, I completely, you know, moved out of the technology sector and uh, ended up working for um, one of. Big Rock's initial target company is called Constance Therapeutics, which does sort of Rick Simpson oil with GMO, uh, GMP standards, not GMO standards,
1: Uh, (laughs) and
3: and, uh, kind of ran that company for a year, really started to get my my chops on the operating side. I had run an outdoor garden before, but, you know, really immersed myself on the operating side. So stepping into Big Rock, really, my background was understanding how to compliantly step into the new market, the legal market, and, um, you know, get get a company, hopefully a little bit closer to cash flow positivity. So, you know, we've been looking at deals for the purpose of direct deployment, you know, of our capital, both the, the anchors of Big Rock Family Office, and then we've done a number of syndications. So across the board, between myself and two other partners that are investing in the space, we've, we've invested in about 40 deals. We tend to focus on California companies um, that mm-hmm. are, you know, sort of looking at the flour and how it interacts in the food and beverage category. So we work with a number of brands and then sort of the surrounding IP and technology that would power them into, you know, those end products. And generally, you know, check sizes are 50 to 500 for direct deployments. But then we also have done some syndications in the one to three million dollar range. And basically, we've just been trying to, you know, assist both companies and investors that are interested in the space and deploying capital into the space through a range of different means. So, you know, being in the Bay Area, we were seeing a lot of companies come out with specific types of term sheets that were sort of fed by the technology uh, ecosystem around us. So we've sort of had questions about whether or not that's the viable path forward with, you know, sort of venture deal structuring, which is looking for generally like a three to seven year exit and, you know, five to 10 times the investor money. So there were a lot of sort of structures that out of the coming into the legal market in 2017 and 2018, um, I think there was a perception of how this industry was going to evolve that sort of informed how a lot of deals were structured. And and now that's being really second guessed. And so we're seeing, you know, new things put into term sheets and just, you know, kind of reset from the investor perspective in terms of what the viability is for exits for these companies. And so that had always been on, on our mind. Um, yeah. Big Rock actually uh, started out as a a family office in that the main guy there, he ran a professional, he's a professional investor, he ran a venture firm. Mm -hmm. And so he had had some significant exits from his sort of day job. And uh, he was utilizing Big Rock as kind of a personal passion project. But, you know, we've actually had a lot of great success with it. So I'm not going to say that it's eclipsed his previous venture fund. but. (laughs) We've done quite well with it and um, a lot of restaurants and a lot of sort of regional businesses that give you that sort of hospitality and like direct experience with the companies and the operators and, you know, coming into cannabis, this sort of baseline of, you know, the forward value realized through exits that just haven't actually occurred. I mean, most exits in the space have occurred, you know, through mergers into sort of Canadian holding, holding companies that are trying to go public on the Canadian market or, you know, a few mergers into, you know, CPG or alcohol related companies, but generally those are, you know, stock only. And so to see a company sort of realize a different type of exit where there's actually, you know, cash in hand and like a liquidity event, um, it just really hasn't occurred. And so we've been trying to think about how do we get cash back out to the investors in the short term so that they'll have patience to sort of see this market through? Cause it may take six, eight, 10 years for us to, you know, sort of realize the potential. But I think all of us understand, all of us that are committed to the industry and you know, that are really, you know, boots on the ground within it really understand that this will be a very big opportunity. It's just a matter of when. And so, you know, if you're, uh, an older individual in your seventies uh-huh. or eighties, you may not want to wait. You know, yeah. eight to ten years for that. So it's just kind of you know speaking with investors and, and LPS and you know just having a a really open and transparent conversation about it is kind of where we've been. And I think a lot of founders out of the gate as the legal market was coming to play didn't necessarily have some of those uh you know vibrant and very realistic conversations with who they were trying to source capital from so
2: yeah for me it certainly has been a conundrum of the cannabis market in terms of you know most investors coming into these you know markets are you know yeah they're looking for some kind of exit they're looking for some kind of liquidation and cannabis while there's all this kind of activity and potential valuation and things like there you don't have access to the same kind of exits that you do in other industries I mean it is that I guess how much of that has impacted kind of the type of capital that has come in the amount of capital the structure of that capital from an investor point of view how how big of a deal is is that part of the industry to investors
3: it's I think the majority of it you know yeah. I think What we saw was kind of a there were sort of two major lanes um, that I was observing. And, you know, my background is not finance. My background is is operating companies. So I've sort of been observing it from the lens of, hey, if I'm a if I'm a founder and an operator, like how am I going to retain my seat on the executive staff? How am I not going to Dilute out my, my, my common shares and, and how am I going to think forward towards the profitability of my company? And the deals that we were often seeing were, you know, there were a lot of medical cannabis dispensaries that um, actually had their footing in advance of, you know, sort of all of the surrounding types of either being technologies or, you know, sort of brand and manufacturing and distribution functions. Um, a mm-hmm. lot of this evolved out of retail shops that were sort of feeding their own engine and that they were able to grow, they were able to produce, you know, certain white labeled products, like lowest common denominator products, like gummies and, you know, your house vape and stuff like that. And so a lot of these medical cannabis dispensaries, being that they were vertically integrated, took a while for them to sort of shake out other shelf space for other companies. And in addition to that, there were 2000 some odd dispensaries in the state of California in late 2017 and then on January 1st of, or January 2nd of 2018 I think there were 84 and you know we've maybe crawled back up to 800, 900 and yep. probably about 600 that are open today but a lot of those didn't step into the legal market so we really you know dissipated the amount of uh, consumers that we were accessing and so the deals that we saw were like real estate deals that were highly speculative um, mm-hmm. that you know generally were like 5 to 10 times the traditional rate, square footage rate for those shops. And there wow. were a few dispensaries that were able to sustain that because they had been in their seats for so long uh, and or there definitely were uh, dispensaries that it had had long-term deals with their landlords and didn't sort of fall into this bucket. But it was sort of that new headwind of groups that were coming in in a highly speculative matter and kind of sitting on real estate and, you know, in cities like San Francisco and places like Union Square and The Hate and whatever that were just so overpriced that the operators were never going to be able to meet the opportunity. And in the end, a lot of those investors, you know, didn't make out well, because it was kind of a it was never set up for success. And then on the other side of it, you know, you had a lot of venture deals that were in a lot of cases, operators that actually hadn't run businesses in the legal market. Well, they hadn't run businesses in the legal market, of course, because it was just developing, but but they also hadn't necessarily run businesses that didn't have like a defined supply chain and ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there, I think, you know, a lot of the venture deals were just very speculative of a future forward, you know, industry that just hadn't been developed. And so their valuations in some cases were, in all cases were based on basically trade organization projections of how big the potential market could be. And I, and I banks basically saying, if we're going to compare this to the market share of alcohol or the market share of pharmaceutical companies or the market share of CPG companies, you know, this could be this huge opportunity. And when you base comps on, you know, other markets that have a foundation amongst, uh, you know, all of the supply chain partnerships, of course, you're going to get much more like optimistic outcome. And so, yeah, there, a lot of the early money came in in a way that was like, we're just going to be hopeful and thoughtful that if I pick the right founder, I'm going to win in the end. And um, what we were always looking at is, you know, what is the existing market? How many retailers are open? How many actual customers? You know, total addressable market. You know, formulating that, you know, sort of formula in a very real way, I'm in a boots on the ground way, is kind of where we've always sat. I'm not going to say that we haven't done a couple of. You know, deals that were uh, overpriced. Roll the dice a few times. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, we've tried to be a little bit more fiscally conservative about what the market actually will do.
2: Yeah, I'm curious, you know, given your background in some of these non-cannabis markets, what are the things that you feel like you've been able to transfer effectively from technology from music industry into cannabis in terms of, you know, operations and principles and procedures and and things like that. And, w- and what hasn't transferred for you so well? Like what compare your experience in these industries and what's different about cannabis?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, so another another piece on the investment side was, you know, capital was able to come to ancillary and sort of non plant touching companies uh, more readily because, you know, if institutional capital or, or capital that was coming from a traditional bank that wanted to be trans- transparent with their banker about where they were placing it as those conversations were had it was like okay we're gonna feed the technology and the sort of picks and shovels if you will um mm-hmm. and our position is has always been that the picks and shovels are the flower if without the flower there's no baseline for the industry without yeah. the shelf allocation that the flower is feeding and then you know the the square footage in the retailer that is allowing those shelves to exist you can't have point of sale you can't have track and trace you can't have all of the surrounding ancillaries. And so a lot of our competitors out of the gate were focused on the ancillaries. And our question was always, well, if you're going to be a point of sale company and you don't have enough clients to cobble forward a decent sauce model or whatever the model ended up being, how is that really going to work? And so out of the gate, we saw like folks fighting on the point of sale and on the track and trace side for such small number of clients that it was just like, there's, yeah, there's going to be one or two that you know survive but if across this country there's only two three thousand retailers like how does that make for a really vibrant point of sale solution within the space and so you know the answer is all of these businesses have to be extremely flexible and nimble and they're you know just trying to they're digging a hole to china to try and find everything buried (laughs) in the ground that could possibly you know culminate towards a viable business path that has you know, stickiness in other industries and adds value in other industries. So for us, you know, we have wanted to basically make sure that there is enough flour feeding the industry here in what is still the largest global market on the you know planet in California. And if we can access 10% of the viable and addressable consumer base here over the first five years out of the gate of the industry then you know we should have a big enough base that a good chunk of companies in this state should be able to find their fair footing so that's been the big differentiator and you know to the extent that you can invest versus it's a good idea to invest you know has kind of always been our mindset
2: yeah and as you look for kind of segments types of companies like what's your kind of i guess investment you know criteria your thesis in terms of where you're going to place money how you place it what you're looking for in either terms of the model or the people that you're backing give us some insights there
3: yeah so first and foremost we really love quality product so we generally, we do get a lot of inbounds and, uh, you know, I, I, I always love inbounds. So, you know, deal flow is appreciated, but, you know, we definitely have our, our own direct read of the market. We spend a lot of time, you know, in dispensaries talking to buyers with new founders. And so the real first thing is we have to like the product. It has to affect us in some way, whether that's, you know, efficacy or just a, a high quality product with good presentation and something slightly different in terms of how they've culminated forward the, the offering. So from there, it really comes down to is the founder somebody that's reasonable that we think will operate compliantly, operate within the the sort of flexible sphere that cannabis requires? And are they doing something that's going to draw in a new consumer base? There are flower companies that are attracting new consumers, So how are they expanding the market share that exists? And, you know, kind of thinking about that. And is that a part of their core, you know, values um, and offering? And and so that's, that's really where it starts. And then as you start to think about deploying capital, and you start to talk term sheets, it becomes very clear, like, if a founder really sort of cares about the investor and, and really understands that this is a journey that they're taking together. And um, at the end of the day, if a founder's willing to make a couple of shifts and changes and like you know sort of see the perspective of the party on the other side of the table, that's like extremely necessary as opposed to just being like super bullish that it's this way or the highway. And uh, mm-hmm. so a lot of conversing around what's reasonable from a term perspective. and, uh, and then as we follow that forward, making sure that you know they are focused on minimizing their burn picking away at at that and sort of balancing their cash flow with that is is extremely important it wasn't as important out of the gate and when we were deploying and 2016, 2017, but uh, it's really important now. And I think uh, most other firms are uh, looking at the same.
2: Yeah. Um, You mentioned in the beginning that, you know, particularly in the Bay Area, there, that there's, you know, kind of an existing, you know, venture community driven by the tech industry and kind of term sheets and norms and things like that. But as you look at cannabis, obviously, you know, it's a different world, different market, different situations. What are the things that you're seeing? that are having to shift or, or people that are coming out of that world getting into cannabis need to kind of rethink or approach differently when it comes to the investments, the terms of those, how that stuff is structured, natures of the deals, any insights that, that you been that you've witnessed, that you've seen?
3: Yeah, so we're definitely starting to see, you know, sort of debt marrying equity. There was always that play. There's always been, you yeah. know, sort of hard money loans and and certain debt structures that are coming in that often will have warrants or, you know, equity kickers attached to them. But now if you flip that on the venture side, where, you know, historically, it was just equity acceleration, you're starting to see some sort of teeth to dividends, wherein there is an expectation that there's going to be some short term cash flow coming back to the investors. So we're starting to see that you know quite a bit, and in fact, some of the deals that we're drafting right now are fall into that category. So the feeling is, first and foremost, like a lot of the early venture money that came in is going to be now dedicated to shoring up their existing holdings, and you know making sure that the companies that they already have you know positions with are going to find a healthy outcome. Um, and so new capital, you know, I would say that there's there's groups that are maybe. Interest rates right now are just so low. There's a lot of groups that can go get a big chunk of capital and maybe put it to underwrite certain infrastructure or certain collateralized functions. So, you know, we're seeing factoring starting to happen, which is helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. LeafLink, of course, just announced, you know, I think it was $240 million. Uh, I know that there's a number of distributors that are doing the same under, you know, sometimes pretty aggressive terms and, and sometimes more, you know, modest monthly interest coming back to them from operators that do have strong sell through and there's a big backup on ARs. So companies aren't getting paid as uh, swiftly as they might in other industries. And, you know, this just creates this bottleneck because you've got transaction fee on top of transaction fee. So that factoring equation is super important. And, you know, I think that there's some smart money coming in to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. And obviously on the real estate side, that's always been sort of an exciting area because you have collateral backing it up. But there was a lot of speculation about you know, some of the supply chain functions, notably like, you know, extraction and, and uh, that just like, there's so many options that, you know, you really don't need to be investing in that sector right now, because you can go have any number of um, parties toll for you. And turn your flour into oil. Um, The bottleneck I'm seeing right now is processing. I think there's less than a hundred processing licenses in the state of California and a bunch of flour is about to come down and uh, it's not going to have a good place to go. And the same was true in hemp in that uh, a lot of people grew. A
2: lot
3: of biomass. Yeah. I think it was like 48%, you know, sort of died on the ground and I doubt that's going to happen with cannabis because uh, it's yeah. uh, more value to it. But I just think it's really interesting that we have something like across the medical and adult use. I believe there's close to 5,000, 5,500 maybe growers, and, and there's less than 100 that have the, the type P processing license. So,
2: and that, was that a licensing problem? Was that, a, you know, that just companies that, that just didn't get formed and take advantage of the licenses or the capacity of the existing companies? Why do we have that dearth?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm actually, you know, scratching my head on it as well. But you know, I, I can give some hypotheticals. I think that it is something regulatory to an extent, you know, the regulatory path. So I can also give a tangible example in uh, one of our companies, which is Sonoma Hills Farm um, up in Sonoma County. And uh, it was the first group to get the full conditional use permit, meaning Sonoma County had an over-the-counter path to get a 10,000 square foot cultivation, but alongside Prop 64, that county, you know, derived a uh, close to an acre of canopy with a processing license attached to it. it. But, you know, when you tie PRMD and zoning and building permitting to a cultivation license or to even a manufacturing license that requires, you know, a lot of infrastructure, you know, updating and otherwise. In in California, you know, I mean, it's a great state and there's so many positive things to say, but a lot of the counties or the areas that have decided yes, we want to take steps into cannabis also are the same that have a tremendous amount of red tape. And when it comes down to you know, certain types of infrastructure, you know, zoning for cultivation is going to come from the food and ag department, which has been a little bit more easy to work with than certain other regulatory bodies. So when you include the local permitting department in any of these cities. I mean, San Francisco is not fantastic. Oakland is not fantastic. LA is not fantastic. But there's, I could name another dozen that are a huge bottleneck. And you're basically fighting with all of the other surrounding construction, residential and commercial construction requirements. It just takes forever. Now, they will in some cases, make exceptions. And, and I think now I'm, I'm hearing of a lot that will be coming online in 2021. But it's definitely been bottlenecked and a, a huge expense area that is taking very, very deep pockets to, uh, and patients to uh, see itself forward. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I'm I'm curious to see what happens in 2021. Like the pendulum can easily swing. <laughs> getting these um these levels right in an industry can be tough, particularly when you've got a lag on you know what it takes to stand up some of these facilities and getting them operational. So, I mean, did you see? Did you just anticipate that you know part of the maturing of this industry is those things kind of finding levels, you know, and proportions and things that work ultimately? But it, it's going to be a little bit of a rocky road.
3: Yeah, I mean. I think this was not a surprise to those of us with our eyes wide open. But I do think that in actualizing what the opportunity is, there was definitely on the front end of it, if you were investing in a vertically integrated group that, you know, It makes sense to be vertically integrated in that, you know, you can attract more margin and, you know, you can kind of own your own destiny, so to speak. But it's been a very expensive endeavor to, you know, bring those types of companies to market, whereas we were focused on groups that could be a little bit more nimble and step into, you know, other distressed assets, step into, you know, Infrastructure situations where they weren't behooving to, to spend all the money to put this together. So we've tried to focus on folks that are going deep in a given category as to, you know, wide. And we think that that's just been exemplified in traditional CPG and in other industries. Coca Cola isn't doing soup to sale, uh, yeah. you know, it has its McDonald's, it has its Costco's, it, you know, it has its Seven Elevens And, uh, the cannabis industry has kind of all of the above. And, and so there's definitely been a fair amount of capital that's gone into, you know, I want to own it all. And well, God bless it but that's a very <laughs> very expensive endeavor in this space and we think there's going to be a couple of exceptions to that rule as long as you're looking at the right founder and 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 they're sort of you know focused on that sort of longevity. So
2: Yeah. I'm curious on the given your operational focus how a lot of kind of stories or people that I talk to just say that there's a lack of you know experienced operators in the space and I mean a would you agree or what's your assessment of that and then what's your sense of the solution like, where are we going to find find these folks? Are, are we going to see migrations from other industries? What does that look like? Which industries is that going to work? What, what's your sense of the operational side of this as this industry grows?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I think first and foremost to enter into cannabis, you have to have the resolve and the passion to you know really commit yourself. This is not going to be a, a fast win, and the salaries and sort of the comp structure that. Folks in my neighborhood are accustomed to here and, you know, the heart of the technology sector are just not going to be one for one. And and uh, so, you know, you, you have to see it for the long term. That said, I think there's significant opportunities on the we see a big bottleneck and issue around, you know, the CFO suite and, you know, having someone that has a traditional, you know, sort of finance oversight of a startup or a cash flowing type of industry. But cannabis obviously has all these other, you know, strange, uh, There's so much on the compliance side, the 280E yeah. implications, like being able to look at a financial model within our space is very different than other spaces. And so that's been a huge area of, I think, friction. So, yeah. and also, you know, CFO and like a one-off company that is going deep in an area as opposed to, you know, a group for hire that's maybe working with 50 or 60 companies at, at a time. You know, I think that the for hire option on the CFO side is where, you know, companies with less than 20 employees need to start. In terms of technology and, and sort of fine science, I think that the sort of chief science officer is also kind of one to look at as a for sort of for hire and then outsourced, as opposed to having that be insulated within any individual company. Um, Because, you know, at this stage, I think it's it's trying to, you know, see optionality on how we formulate and, you know, things like stability and viscosity and, and that are really hard to achieve, particularly if you're like working with a specific type of medium like vapor or. You know, flour. So that's another, you know, sort of area that I think we do need a lot of, of new talent to come in. And on the formulation side, there's just so many amazing, interesting things that can be done because of all the varying um, phenotypes and chemicals that are going into these products. And uh, it's hard to find that fit for a company. So, yeah, but in terms of, you know, traditional markets or industries that have seen, a really good lift within cannabis, obviously marketing and branding, the professional services, the lawyers, you know, we all say the lawyers are making all the money lawyers and and accounting. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, but for me, CFO, CSO, those are the, those are the two kind of bottlenecks Um, operating side. You know, we need to see more sort of CPG or hospitality operators. And I think on the restaurant side, Obviously, with COVID, things have really shifted that market. I think those types of folks would make extremely efficient um, operators of retail and buyers within the space. You know, if you interacted with with Cisco or, you know, any of the big buyers on the other side of it, it's not one-to-one that you're going to be able to understand what flower looks like. But, you know, from an inventory management perspective and actually, you know, assessing KPIs, on top of maybe someone that has cannabis knowledge, you know that's uh hopefully as more retail comes online, we'll have a path for some for for some hospitality groups
2: yeah, and do you have any uh, I'm curious when you're working with your companies on kind of strategic planning and kind of forecasting how are you approaching this whole kind of federal legalization decriminalization? kind of situation or do you have any kind of expectations that you're working with or Are you're just kind of developing models for all the possible cases because we don't know what's going to happen I and mean, what's your take on how this industry may get affected by you know what happens at the federal level
3: yeah our initiative is to advocate for california so california we believe has the highest number of entrepreneurs that have something really special from a you know IP and innovation and just knowledge set. So we're going to advocate that California, just as it is the most exported in other agriculture categories, be the biggest exporter of cannabis to the nation and then eventually to the world. So we are, you know, we we're in various trade organizations like the CCIA and the NCIA, but we also have put in some time and support of Interstate commerce by a group called Sensible Markets. Um, the individual who got a bill passed up in Oregon um, to allow for a treaty-born export of their weed is fighting for the same here in California. The goal would be an alliance with a state that has a huge number of customers, but that isn't set up to, you know, cultivate or supply into mm-hmm. into those customers in a robust way. I mean, as we see new markets coming online more recently Illinois and before that Massachusetts that have, you know, millions and millions of customers, but um, they don't have, you know, the infrastructure to actually grow the cannabis. We're seeing rationing, we're seeing kind of a a glutton of customers and just not enough product to feed them. And, you know, this whole concept that we're going to put up indoor infrastructure in every single state, a um, from an environmental perspective, it's, yeah. it's not the right path. But B, when we do realize federal legalization, and we do have some sort of interstate commerce. What's going to happen to all of those facilities? You know, we're seeing it time and again in Canada, where you know a lot of capital is going into building these facilities out, and and then two, three years later, when they shift their laws around import/export, you know, those just become unused infrastructure, and and that just yeah. That's just sad, and we also are like, I don't want to eat a lot of things from buildings that I have seen weed be grown in. We we, we want to yeah. consume weed that you know is coming from a happy place. Happy cows yeah. make happy milk, and happy trees make happy weed. That's the biggest area we're focused on. Um, I also uh, have to put in a, 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 a suggestion that the industry doesn't have its got milk yet. So we've yeah. been. Every single company has made it behooven on them to teach every customer around them that weed is awesome, cannabis is awesome, and it's yeah. like thank you for (laughs) enlightening more customers and and bringing them into the fold, but is there actually going to be a one-to-one equivalent value for you, your company that put up this big billboard or tried to place a Super Bowl ad or tried to, you know, build some big video? We need to collectively be doing this. Um, It gets a little tough because Got Milk came from the USDA, which is, you know, authorized under a federal uh, body and we don't have that, but um, I think think California as a state could do it and, and other certain states could do it so i'd like to see the industry actually the industry's had a hard time coming together and in a lot of respects i think covid was the first time that i think we all saw a light bulb and we can together collectively we worked to make cannabis essential and it yeah. happened and that was that's now the biggest for any investor or for any fundraiser or for any founder that's looking to to bring in money that's the number one thing you're going to see on on a deck Uh, The headlines of everything, cannabis is now essential. So to understand that that collective benefits all of us, we can now forward that hopefully to other initiatives. So um, those are the two big ones for me.
2: Yeah, just a pleasure. Um, If people want to learn more about you, more about Big Rock, what's the best way to get that information?
3: Absolutely. So uh, Big Rock is just Big, uh, B-I-G-Dash Rock, R-O-C-K. You can find information about us there and on our blog. And then you can find me at Joyce and Ollie, on LinkedIn and uh, uh, also check out Sonoma which is a project that we uh, own and operate. And yeah, it's been a pleasure, Bruce. Thank you so much. Yeah.
2: I will make sure that all those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time today.
3: Absolutely.
1: You've been listening to thinking outside the bud with business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. to find a full list of podcast episodes. Download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com and don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter.